Good evening. Over the course of the last two lessons, we have talked about, at length, the absolute necessity of calling Bible things by Bible names, speaking where the Bible speaks. We have talked about the absolute necessity of making sure that we know and teach and teach our children especially how not to become so intimately involved with the world and her ways that neither we nor they any longer know or understand or rightly divide or speak correctly the language of God. We have talked about how we need to make sure that we do not speak and communicate in the language of modern-day Ashdod, if you will, the pagan religious world all around us. Over the course of those last two lessons, we have talked about Nehemiah chapter 13 in the Old Testament. We have discussed 1 Peter in the New Testament this morning with a little bit of Romans 10 thrown in along the way for good measure. One of the important things that we have discussed and I would ask you to please keep in mind tonight especially is that it is not that the people of Ashdod were not religious. They were highly religious, 1 Samuel 5 and other places. But the reason they were still pagan despite being highly religious is because their religion was not based on following the doctrines and commandments of God, but their religion was based on following the doctrines and commandments and imaginations of men instead. And that is why they were prohibited and off limits to the people of God, because God's people could lose their heritage and, and all of that. And, and we've talked about this at length. I don't need to re-preach the last two lessons. If I do, you'll be here all night, and I don't want to do that. We would also do well to remember as we study tonight that the same was true of the highly religious but still not thoroughly God's people, the pagan people, addressed in Romans 10, 1 through 3 as we discussed this morning. Pagan in the sense that they would not accept the righteousness of God, they did not understand the language of God, etc. So as we'll see tonight, the same is absolutely true today. As we look at this language thing, as we examine how the language of the word of the living God defines certain terms and phrases, one of the things that we're going to see is that it is largely the pagan religious world around us, not necessarily the atheists or those that don't believe in, in any form of, of God or anything else. It's not really them. It, it's more the, the religious world that doesn't know the word of God that has taken a lot of these words and phrases from the word of God, and they're the ones that have twisted them and perverted them and, and have their own language, which doesn't look anything like the definitions that God gave of these words. It is that lack of knowledge that will lead to their destruction on Judgment Day if they don't get into the language and the Word of God. And it is that same thing that can happen to us if we follow their lead, just as we saw in Nehemiah 13. So I want to begin with some words tonight. 
that in the language of God, the Bible, so completely different than the language of those who don't know God, even highly religious people that don't know the word of God. First one's real simple. And to some of you, this may even seem a little basic, but so be it. First one's this word, saint, S-A-I-N-T, saint. One of the highly religious groups around us today defines the word saint as somebody that meets two requirements. Number one, they have to have been dead for 500 years. Number two, they have to have carried out two confirmed miracles. Now, how do you confirm a miracle? First off, I realize the age of miracles is fast, but how do you confirm a miracle of somebody that died over 500 years ago? How do you confirm that? I mean, it's not like you have eyewitnesses, right? We talked about that this morning. Well, what you do is, is you go through a very costly process which benefits that particular religious group as you pay these people to do all these investigations and so on and so forth. That's how that works. But again, in order to be a saint in that particular language, the understanding of that particular religious group, dead 500 years to confirm miracles. But that's not the way God's word defines saint. In the language of God, the word saint is completely, completely different from that. In the first place, we see that in the word of God, that a saint is somebody who is very much alive. Now, I'm going to give you a number of examples. I could have come up with a lot more. And, and you can turn there. In fact, I prefer you did. They're, they're kind of in order right along. I'm going to give you five or six, just, just so that if you ever study with one of these folks, you'll have these readily at hand. But it's, it's good to have. And so turn there, if you will, or just listen. The first one's in Acts chapter 9. And, and my preference would be that you did, obviously, follow along. Acts chapter 9. The point is that in the language of God, a saint is very, 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 very much alive, not dead. That's how God defines a saint. Acts 9.32, now it came to pass as Peter went through all parts of the country that he also came down to these saints who dwelt at Lydda. Please notice they dwelt there. They were living people. They were not in the, in the cemetery. They were not in sepulchers. They were not in tombs. They dwelt there. They were very much alive. A little further on down in Acts chapter 9, verse 41, it says, Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up when Peter healed Dorcas. He, he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he didn't call dead people, when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. As we move on to Acts chapter 26, in Acts chapter 26, the Apostle Paul is talking about what he did to the church. He's talking about what he did to church members. And he says in Acts chapter 26, in verse 10, this I also did in Jerusalem and many of the saints I shut up in prison. You don't have to put dead people in prison. You don't have to put people who have been dead 500 years in prison. Probably their bodies are not real. Anyway, these were live people. 
He said, this I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. If there was ever a verse that said the saints are really alive, there it is. He says, this is what I did, and when they were put to death later on, I cast my vote against them. The saints were very much alive. We would, we would notice, let me give you three more, all from the latter part of Romans. Romans chapter 15. And yes, I, I realize that I'm kind of, I can't say beating a dead horse when we're talking about living saints, but there are so many more I could have used, but I just want you to see this again and again and again. And I want those who may be watching this, who may be of that religious persuasion, to understand this. So a lot of this is for their benefit. Uh, Paul says to the church in Rome in Romans 15, 25 and 6, but now I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. Again, not dead people, live ones. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make certain contributions for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. You don't need to take up a contribution for people that are deceased. Finally, Romans chapter 16 and verse 15, he says, Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. They were all saints, the ones he named and the ones that were with them. He said, greet them, talk to them. They were live people. Okay. Saints are not people that have been dead for 500 years. In the language of modern-day Ashdod in the pagan religious world, maybe, but not in the language of God. And here's another interesting thing. Who are these saints? Who are saints? We, we know that they're alive, but who are they? Well, the word saints comes from the Greek word hagios. H-A-G-I-O-S, hagios. Hagios simply means holy. As a matter of fact, the Greek word hagios is translated as holy 161 times in the New Testament, and it's translated saint or saints 61 times in the New Testament, same word. So who are the saints? The saints are simply those who are holy. That's who they are. But here again, when we discuss those who are holy according to the language of God as opposed to those that in the language of modern-day Ashdod are holy, you see two whole different groups of people. You see, if the saints are those who are holy, which they are, according to the word of the living God, that simply means all of those people who have been made holy by the blood of Christ. All of those people that have been made holy by the blood of Christ are all of those people who have had their sins washed away through their immersion into Christ, their Christian baptism for the forgiveness of their sins. Is that the only way to be forgiven of your sins? Baptism, repentance, baptism, the, 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 biblical, the biblical, I can say that word, the biblical plan, sure. So those who have been baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, had their sins washed away in the blood of the lamb, have been made holy, and it is those who have been made holy who are called saints. So when you put all of that together, the saints, according to the word or language of the living God, are simply those members of the Lord's church. That's who they are. Those who have been added to the Lord's church through their obedience to the gospel and been made holy through the blood. Now, it's not just my definition. It's God's definition. This is the language of God. Let me show it to you. Let me give you several examples. Please follow along, and again, these come right in order. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, please turn there. 
In, in all of these texts, the word saints is used, and it's going to use other descriptors. Like if somebody were to say, well, I'm going to write a letter or send an email to Doug Dingley, the preacher at Shoto. Now, they've told you who I am, but also what I do. They, the preacher, Shoto, and Doug would be the same thing. And a lot of you have, have similar things. Your, your mom or your dad or your grandma or your granddad or your mister or your missus, you're all of those things. And so a person could say, well, I'm going to talk to this person who's this, and you know, they're this, you know? Well, Paul, in writing his epistles, will use the word saints and then several other descriptive terms of that same group. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2. To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. In that text alone, you see that the saints are those who are members of God's church, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, they're the ones called to be saints, and all of those who call on the name of Jesus Christ. Well, how do you call on the name of Jesus Christ again? Well, Peter told you in Acts 2. You call on the name of the Lord when you are baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins in his name. And so the saints are members of the Lord's church. We, we see this in 2 Corinthians, the very next epistle, 2 Corinthians 1.1. I want you to look at what this says. 2 Corinthians 1.1. Who's he writing to? He tells you who he is. He says, Paul, and an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Who's he writing to? To the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in Achaia. He uses the term saints and church of God, synony uh, not synonymously. He uses them to mean the same thing. Okay? Yeah, synonymously. They're synonyms. Yes, that's right. The church of God, which is at Corinth, along with all the saints who are in Achaia. That's like when Jesus said, and I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Then he goes on and says, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom. Same word, synonyms. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1. And again, I realize that a lot of us know this, but, but our kids have got to know it, and the people who may be watching this need to know who the saints are. Ephesians 1.1, God tells us, in the language of God, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. The saints are those that are faithful in Christ Jesus. Well, if they're faithful in Christ Jesus, they've got to be in Christ Jesus, and we know that we get into Christ Jesus when we're baptized into Christ. Again, Saints are simply the members of Christ's church. That's in the language of God. Living members of the Lord's church. Matter of fact, a little further on in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19, it says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. If you ever wanted a text that tells you who the saints are, there they are. They're members of the household of God. Living members. I can just run down through the, the rest of these for you if you'd like. Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, sorry. Sorry. Got ahead of myself. Not only do we see that saints are citizens of the household of God, but if we were to go over to Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, Paul writes about equipping saints for ministry. Who's he writing to? Church members. 
living church members. Then we move on from there to Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. The saints are those who are in Christ. Well, what if you've got somebody who's religious and they've, they've said this prayer and they believe they're saved by that and they've never been baptized into Christ and, and all of that. Well, they're not following the language of the Lord, the language of God's word. We need to understand that the saints are those who are in Christ Jesus. In Colossians 1.2, they're defined as the faithful brethren in Christ. In Colossians 1.26, it is talking about how God revealed this mystery to his saints. And finally, Jude chapter 1 and verse 3 says, and you can turn to this one because we're going to discuss this one a little bit more. Jude, the book of Jude, right up next to Revelation, third verse. He says this. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to, once for all, delivered to the saints. How's the word used in, our, in, in society today in general? Saint? If somebody was a really good person, did some nice stuff. They're called a saint. Oh, my grandmother was a saint. Oh, my, my great uncle, he was a saint. Boy, he read his Bible, that man was a saint. That's how the world, in the language of the world, uses the term. I'm tempted, and I want to think about this and keep it at the forefront of my mind, that the next time I hear that, if the circumstances are right, if I feel as though the circumstances are right and I can kind of get in there with the discussion, what I'd like to remember to say the next time I hear somebody say, oh, so-and-so was a saint. I want to say, I didn't know they were a member of the Lord's Church. Now, you have to be careful and you have to speak in love, and I, and I understand that. But that's the terms that we need to think of when we hear the word saint. And that brings us to our second term of the evening, one which we saw in Jude. And that is the word faith. Faith. Remember what Jude said in, in Jude 3? While I was diligent to write to you concerning a common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. Our second term is faith. And that phrase, the faith. I'll I tell you, just, I, I had to be a little bit sad when I looked up the word faith in Merriam-Webster's online dictionary. This one they, they muddled up. One of the things that they call faith is sincerity of intentions. Sincerity of intentions. Did Paul have sincerity of intentions when he was imprisoning Christians? Yeah, he was very sincere. But he was dead wrong in acting in complete opposition to the will of God for his life according to Acts 22, 1 through 8 and 26, 9 through 15. But this is the meaning that really got me when I looked up faith in Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Listen to this. Firm belief in something for which there is no proof. Firm belief in something for which there is no proof. I got a question for you as a Christian. Do you have faith in God because there is no proof for God's existence? I don't. 
There's absolute proof for God's existence. It is Romans 1, it is in the creation. The tomb is empty. The word that come to us over all of those, all of those centuries that is flawless, that is inerrant. There is proof for God everywhere you turn every day. I don't believe in God. I don't have faith in God based on absolutely no proof whatsoever. No way. I don't have a blind faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I have all kinds of proof that God is God. That's why I believe in God. That's why I have faith in God. Merriam-Webster's got this all messed up, but that's the language of modern-day Ashdod. What about religious, denominational, modern-day Ashdod? What about the word faith then? Well, the word faith to many denominations simply means a belief that God is and that Jesus is his son. And that's enough to save me. Because I believe God is in heaven, I believe there is a God, and I believe Jesus was indeed the Messiah or his son. So therefore, that's enough faith to save me. That's the way the religious world defines and uses that word in a lot of places. According to the word of God, absolutely nothing could be further from the truth. In God's word, and I'm going to ask you to turn with me to James chapter 2. In the word of God, faith is not defined as a belief in something for which there is no proof, nor is faith defined as a simple intellectual assent that God exists and Christ was his son. Because if so, as we know, demons will be in heaven. James 2, verse 19, you believe there is one God, you do well, even the demons believe and tremble. If faith alone, just intellectual consent is enough, if that's the, if that's the definition of faith, then there will be demons in heaven. He goes on to say, in fact, let's finish up here in James, James 2.20. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Did you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? The scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He was called a friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. There is a lot more to faith according to the word and language of God than most of what the modern day religious world defines faith as. Listen, if you just read Hebrews 11, just, and we know, and I'm not turning there, but if you just read Hebrews 11, by faith, this one did that, and by faith, this one did that, and by faith, this one did that, and by faith, this one did that. In every one of those cases, by faith, they did something. There's a lot more to faith than just saying, oh, yeah, I believe. That's not God's definition. God's definition of faith, Hebrews 11, James 2, God's definition of faith is reading and hearing about God from his word, Romans 10, 17, and then having enough belief in what God said to go ahead and do what God said. That's faith. Because if you don't believe in God enough that he is God, that what he told you to do, you ought to be doing, you don't got any faith. That's the message of Hebrews 11. And then there is that phrase, which Jude 
1.3 uses the word faith in, and that is when Jude says, contend earnestly for the faith. I want the phrase, the faith. To those who truly belong to and are wanting to please only God, by only speaking where his word, the Bible, speaks, and by calling Bible things by what his word, the Bible, calls them, it is imperative that we understand this point about that phrase, the faith. The entire world around us, the Ashdodian world, the Ashdodian language speaking world around us, they may use the word faith, plural, to refer to the many and varied, differing, man-made religious systems out there today like they're all on the same level. There are many faiths. What we need to understand is, number one, the word faith, plural, never once anywhere occurs in the Bible. Faith is not a biblical word. When we use that word, we are not speaking where the Bible speaks. We are not speaking as the Bible speaks. We are not speaking as the oracles of God. Faith, plural, is not in the scriptures. As far as God is concerned, there is only one Lord and one baptism, just as his word tells us, there is only one faith. Ephesians 4 and verse 5. It is this one biblical faith or belief system that is defined, outlined, and delivered exclusively in the word of God. That is why it is always referred to in the singular or as the faith. Do you know how many times the phrase the faith occurs in the New Testament? Faith, zero. The faith, 39 times. If we're going to speak and call Bible things by Bible names, there is only one faith that is viable to God. Let me give you some examples, and again, you can follow along or just listen. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, it says, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Only one. Just one. And that is that religious system that is outlined in the Bible. Now, there are other religious beliefs, but when it comes to a faith, there is only the faith according to the word of God. The one saving faith, if you will. We move on. In the book of Acts, Acts 14 and verse 22, it talks about Paul after he's stoned, how he comes back to that region. And he goes in and it says, he was, Acts 14, 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. He did not exhort them to continue in their faith, like this one was a member of this religious group, and this one was a member of this religious group, and this one was a member of this religious denomination. He did not tell them that they must continue in their faith, or their faith, plural, but in the faith, because in the language of God, there's only one faith. Acts 16 and verse 5, the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Notice. The word churches there is plural. 
like the churches of Christ, Romans 16, 16, greet you. All of these different congregations, there may have been different congregations all over the first century known world, just like there are congregations all over the U.S. and the world today, but it's still only the faith that they should be teaching and preaching. There is one faith that is the faith, and that's the end of that according to the word of God. Paul talks in Romans 1.5 about having received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. Hey, not only is it the faith, but Paul's writings were to create an obedience to the faith. There's got to be an obedience to it. It isn't just that it exists. It isn't just something we can intellectually say, hey, yeah, I believe that there is just the faith. We have to be obedient to the faith. Romans 1, verse 5. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. That's the language of God. That's the word of God. He says, be strong, stand fast in that faith. That's 1 Corinthians 16, 13 as he ends that epistle to the Corinthians. In his next epistle to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, look how he ends it in verse 5 of chapter 13. He said, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. God doesn't say, test yourselves and examine yourselves to see if you have any faith. That's not what he said. He didn't say, test yourself and examine yourself to see if you're in one of the faiths. Faith never occurs in the Bible, but see if you're in the faith. Because brethren, if you ain't in the faith, as far as God's concerned, you ain't in a faith somewhere else. Because he said there's only one. Colossians 2.7 says we are to be established in the faith. And then in 1 Timothy 6.10, 6.21, and 2 Timothy 2.18, he talks about those who have strayed from the faith. They've strayed from the one faith, the only faith as far as God is concerned. What did, what did Paul say in 2 Timothy 4.7? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And finally, in 1 Peter 5, 9, speaking of the devil, Peter says, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. The whole world is to be of one faith as far as God is concerned. That's what the language of God says. Question. Do our kids know this? Do our kids understand the difference between the one biblical faith found in and according to the language and word of the living God versus what the pagan, religious, modern-day Ashdodian world all around us tries to convince us are the many different acceptable faiths? Do they? You know, I can fully understand somebody who was seeking God, going to a denomination, looking for God, seeking God, not knowing the difference. And I can understand that as time goes by, as they study and they compare everything they see in the word of God with, with what they're experiencing and the name of the church and how the church worships and all that. And, and I can understand over time as they study with a sincere heart, I can understand them coming and becoming part of the Lord's church that they see in scripture. That's understandable, right, for sincere heart? What I don't understand 
is how somebody can leave the Lord's church, the faith, the one, who's had good Bible teaching that there's only one and there's the faith and that's it, and become a member of a man-made denomination and faith or system of religious belief that's not found in God's word anywhere. Where did we fail to teach them the language of God? Do you see how important it is that we know this right here, this language in these terms that God laid down? And that brings us to our third term of the evening. Stems out of the word faith and the faith. And that term is this, prayer of faith. The way the Ashdodian language-driven world out there, religious world, defines prayer of faith. Sometimes they call it the sinner's prayer. And how they define the phrase prayer of faith, calling it the sinner's prayer at times, is a prayer that you say to welcome Jesus into your heart and have your sins forgiven, which we know is not in the Bible anywhere. It's not how it's done in the Bible. People don't know the Bible. Hey, I, I did this. I did this more than once. I trusted the people that told me. You can't look at me and say, well, how do you know what it's like? I know exactly what it's like because I did that several times. I said the sinner's prayer. That's how they define prayer of faith. But that's not how God defines prayer of faith. The term prayer of faith is in the Bible once. One time and only one time. In the language of God, it's in there once. And it does not have anything to do whatsoever with the conversion of a lost soul to Christ. Even the phrase that is biblical, prayer of faith, which has been so perverted in the language of modern-day Ashdod, even though it occurs in the Bible, it has got absolutely nothing to do with the conversion of a lost soul to Christ. Not in the context, not the way it's used. There is nothing about the way it occurs in the one time it does in the Bible that's got anything to do with conversion. It doesn't. We're going to see this. I'm going to prove it. You know what it does have to do with? It has to do with the healing and preservation of an already saved but struggling saint from amongst the brethren that are there. By the way, the term brethren. Brethren is a term that James uses 15 times in five short chapters in the book of James. He uses it five times alone in chapter five. My point in telling you that before we turn there is James is writing to brethren. James is writing to people that have already been converted. James is writing to people who have already been converted to Christ and become Christians when he writes about the prayer of faith. It's not to make them that. They've been that for a long time. Turn to the passage in James 5, verse 13, would you please? James 5, verse 13. This is how God uses the terminology prayer of faith. This is the context. Again, five times in this one short chapter alone, James would refer to these people he's writing to as his brethren, those who are already Christians. And then he says this in verse 13. Is any among you suffering? Whoa! Among you? Among, amongst the brethren? Amongst you that are already Christians, already converted? Are there any amongst you suffering? Let him pray. 
Is anyone cheerful? Obviously talking about amongst them. That's the context. Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Among who? Among the brethren, the church, those that are already converted. Yes, I am being terribly redundant, but I'm doing it for a reason. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Whoa, 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 whoa. Prayer of faith, there it is, will save what sick? That sick brother, that sick church member, that sick one from amongst the brethren. And the Lord will raise him up. Raise who up? That sick member of the church, that one that was already converted, that member of the brethren. And if he has committed sins, who? That member of the church, that brother in Christ, he will be forgiven. That's how the term is used. The one and only time we see prayer of faith. And I, and I want you to think about, we talked this morning about Satan coming in and remember switching signs, taking the stuff that's really costly and, and the stuff that's really precious and, and making it look like it's not worth anything and, and taking the stuff that's not worth anything and, and making it look like it's really precious. We talked about that this morning. What I want to ask you is this, how many people, how many people, or better yet, how much eternal damage has Satan done by switching the signs and corrupting this language on this one phrase, prayer of faith? How many people, how many people? Because they've listened to the language of modern day Ashdod on what a prayer of faith is rather than what God said it is. And, and here's the danger of somebody saying that prayer of faith. Most people, once they've said that prayer, they believe they're saved. That's, what, that's why they said it, okay? Some of them believe it so strongly, and you may have studied with people like this, you may say, hey, I've studied with that person you're talking about, Doug. Some of them believe that it saved them so strongly that they don't want to hear anything else about being saved because they believe they already are. You ever known somebody like, anybody ever known somebody like, they believe so strongly in that prayer they don't even want to talk about being saved or baptism with you or what God said about because they already are. Because they said that prayer of faith as defined by the language of Ashdod. Not as defined by the language and the word of the living God. That is scary. There are countless other words and phrases, the meanings of which I could go on and on and on if I had time, but I don't. Be aware from these three sermons how desperately we need to know and speak only where the scriptures speak, only as the oracles of God. I hope that just the few words we've covered and the few things we've said have, have really gotten into your heart and made you realize we, we can't let us or our kids go by their definitions. We've got to go by God's definitions on all of these words. We could talk about other words, like, for instance, the word truth. Really briefly, just a couple of terms. The word truth. Everybody out there today, well, I got my truth, you got your truth. Our truths can be completely opposite, but what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. How many people have you heard saying, there's no such thing as absolute truth? That, there's a Greek word for that, and it's baloney, okay? No such thing as absolute truth? Maybe not in the language of Ashdod, but in the language of Almighty God, there is such a thing as absolute truth, and it's his word. John 17, 17, Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. There is a black and white, absolute, absolute from God, inerrant, 
forever and eternally defined and settled in heaven truth. It is that truth by which we will all be judged on the last day, John chapter 12, verses 48 through 50. It is that truth that will set us free, set us free. John 8, 31 and 32. Do not tell me there is no such thing as an absolute truth. The Bible also says this in Romans chapter 3 and verse 4. Let God be true and every man a liar. What does that tell you? No matter what they tell you with the religious pagan language of Ashdod, if it's different from what God said, pick what God said. Let God be true and every man a liar. Another one that we could discuss, <laughs> I'm gonna talk about a, a word that has really been messed up by the world today. About the word, word marriage. <laughs> Listen. If marriage is not one man and one woman for life, separated only by death or adultery, then God calls it an abomination. Or adultery, or sexual immorality. Again, there are many others, but it's up to each one of us to make sure we learn and know and teach the life-giving language of the living word of God to everybody we know, and especially our kids, and never fall for the worldly man-made perversions and deceptions and soul-stealing definitions that the world continually seeks to thrust and force upon us. As we close, I just want you to remember these words, the words of God when it came to the fate of his Old Testament people who refused to heed just such warnings as we've talked about for the last three lessons. God said this, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. God says, if you don't want to learn my language and speak in my language, if you don't want to listen to my law, if you don't want to speak as the oracles of God, if you do not want to follow that which I have said in the way that I have said it and learn that and know that, he said, you'll be destroyed because you don't know that. And I'll forget your children. Why? Because we've allowed our children to forget God. That's why. You see now why it is so eternally important that we don't intermix with the people of modern day Ashdod to the point that we let them corrupt what we know of the language of God. If you don't understand how vital that is tonight, not because I haven't tried to do my part as a gospel preacher in the last three lessons. In light of that, the lesson is yours. Tonight as we close, you have the opportunity, if you've never been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, to be saved exactly as the Bible says. The Bible does not say to say some prayer of faith to be saved. I've covered that rather thoroughly. Forgiveness comes by obedience to the gospel, Acts 2 and verse 38. When we repent, that is, we turn our lives over to God, 
We just give it all up to God. We know we've messed it up, and we, we turn our hearts and our minds to God, and we are willing to be baptized to bury that old man of sin in the waters of Christian baptism, be raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6. It is at that point that we become a child of the living God, according to the word of God in Galatians 3, 26 and 7. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized, that's how it's defined. Or maybe you have, and tonight as you sit here or as you listen to this at some point in time, you come to the conclusion that, hey, there's so much I don't understand. I need to study. There's so much that I haven't understood. And I, I need the prayers of the church that I'll be more diligent in my Bible study. We'll pray for you. We'll do anything we can to help. But please, this week, do not get swept up in the language that the world uses and let it carry you away from the language of the living God between Genesis and Revelation. If you have a need, we come to the front as we stand and sing.